You're listening to the Life Tree Church Sermon of the Week. We pray that as you hear this word, you would be encouraged and inspired as you pursue Jesus in your everyday life. So Becky, Becky showed my card saying Caleb's going to, you know, preach on unity some more. Um, what I want to say to you guys actually is that six weeks ago, I think, maybe five, um, we started a series that we're calling Gospel Culture. And that's what we've been preaching on. You might be like, I thought you were preaching on unity. You've been talking about unity a lot. Well, what I can tell you is that this idea of gospel culture is, is that we believe that the gospel is not something just to hear and believe. It's to be believed and practiced. One of the key responses that the Bible teaches us to the gospel is repentance. And repentance actually means a change of thinking and behavior. And so the gospel isn't something that we just like get a checklist of doctrines and truths and beliefs that we look at and we go yes and amen to, but they actually in that yes and amen to believing them produce behavior in our life. They should produce a culture within our church community. And we believe here that gospel truth produces gospel culture, but gospel culture expresses gospel truth. Say it again, gospel truth produces gospel culture, and gospel culture expresses gospel truth. You realize that when you read your New Testament, it's full of a bunch of letters to different churches, right? Um, and all of those letters have a, a similar motive within the author that was, that was inspiring them to write it, other than the Holy Spirit himself. And that motive that you can see between the lines of your New Testament and those letters is an attempt and a desire from the authors to actually see a certain culture established in a group of people called the church that the world would see as very different, that the world would see as good and glorious and beautiful and attractive. And all of these truths, these gospel truths that these letters are full of, aren't just given by the authors in order to have a checklist of beliefs for us, but they're beliefs that are intended to produce a behavior, to produce a culture. And one of the things I have found myself increasingly aware of as we've been preaching over the last five, six weeks on gospel culture is that the topic seems to come back again and again and again to unity. That's why you keep hearing unity as the theme. And, and it's like, it's amazing. We didn't plan to just go out and preach on unity. We planned to preach on gospel culture, but unity tends to be what keeps coming out. And what I become increasingly aware of is how big a deal unity is in the New Testament. It's throughout it, even when the word's not being used. It's, it's what we're being called to. I mean, Jesus gave some really uh, simple but profound instructions and commands on the night before he was crucified. He says in John 13, I've given you a new commandment. Love one another. Love one another. Listen to this. As I have loved you. And then he says, it's by your love for one another that the world's going to know that you're my disciples. 
And he goes on and he prays, and Charlotte preached from this a couple weeks ago, in his prayer for all those who would believe in years and generations to come, he prays this, that they may be one, and as you read on a little bit, so the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus is saying that, that the oneness and the unity that he desires to see, that he's praying for in his church, would actually testify and witness to the world that who he is and where he came from is true. In other words, what he says about himself, that he came from the Father, that he was sent by God, that he is the Word made flesh, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He didn't say that about himself. Someone wrote it. But, but the idea is that through our oneness and our unity, the world might know and believe the truth of the gospel. What I'm becoming more and more convinced of is that unity is central to the mission of God in the church and through the church. It's actually our oneness, our unity, our love for one another that makes the message of the gospel have any magnetic or attractive value to it. How many of you know we live in a world that is characterized and marked these days by polarity and animosity and division? Anybody seen some of that in culture, right? And in that context that we find ourselves living in, it is profound how love and unity lived out well can be attractive and magnetic. But here's the deal. Kelly said this a few weeks ago. Unity does not demand uniformity. We can be different, and what we're going to talk about today even is we can disagree and still walk in love and unity. And the scriptures are really clear in how we can do this. Biblical unity actually gives room for this difference and disagreement. It's actually, it's actually in the context of some of that difference and disagreement that love and unity is seen as supernatural, as glorious, as beautiful. And so the question I want to put to you today is how do we do disagreement well? How can we do disagreement well? Before I start to read from some scripture, I just want to give you a bit of, like, from life thoughts on this. And I've learned this, you can probably guess, in marriage. I know, I know not everybody in this room is a married person. Not everybody watching is a married person. But even if you're not married, I bet you can guess that there's some disagreement and difference that exists in marriages. And here we are. We find ourselves in this relationship where we made a covenant, a promise, a commitment, a legally binding contract to, to do life together with another human being who we don't necessarily agree with all the time. And I remember when Telsey and I first got married, there was like this revelation for me that there were things that I believed to be right or wrong that were actually just preference and opinion. That, that I came in, you know, you come into marriage with a family culture ingrained in you and you don't even know it. And then you start to live under the same roof for about a week 
and you're like, oh my gosh, like that, what, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, like, like there's such a like, uh, there's, there's all these little things. Maybe it's the way you put the toilet paper on. Does it go over or come from under when it rolls? You know, like over for sure, just in case you were wondering. But uh, you're welcome if you needed to know that. But, uh, but so, you know, early on in marriage, you start to realize, oh my gosh, I thought these things that I thought were right and wrong are just preference and opinion. They're just my, my family culture that I was raised in. And then your family cultures start to rub off on each other, and you maybe shed a little bit of this, and you, 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 you take a bit of that that they brought, and so on and so forth. Or, or maybe, you know, maybe you give each other some of the bad stuff you brought in your family culture. You may figure it out along the way. And part of the beauty is that you stick it out and you stay together. Like one of the most beautiful things about marriage, in my opinion and in my experience, is that despite Talcy and I's stark differences as human beings and even disagreements on even really important things like parenting and different things that you have to work it out and figure it out, our commitment to continue doing life together in the context of all that stuff is part of what makes it so beautiful. The same thing's true for the church. And one of the things that I have learned um, in doing premarital counseling, I got some premarital counseling um, guinea pigs, I'll call you guys, because <laughs> I'm new at this thing, but, uh, you know, in the room here, is that we don't actually talk about and teach conflict resolution. We teach conflict management. And the reason why we teach conflict management versus conflict resolution is because not all conflicts in that relationship, in that marriage, will come to a resolve. There's a study done by John Gottman. Anybody know who John Gottman is? John Gottman, great, like, relational uh, <clears throat> professor, PhD, etc. Brilliant, big team. They do all sorts of research. Kim and Darlene Unra have introduced us to John Gottman's stuff. Anybody love Kim and Darlene Unra? They're going to be here in February, a little heads up about that. Um, and, and in John Gottman Institute's studies, they came up with this statistic after analyzing a ton of marriages. That the average marriage has 69% of its conflicts never resolved. That 69% of the things that you will have conflict over never actually come to a resolve. You remain of different perspective and different opinion on those matters for the entirety of your marriage. Now, some people hear that number and you go, man, that is depressing. But the truth of it is, if you look at it another way, it's actually really encouraging. That you can live with that kind of disagreement and difference and still stay committed to each other. And you learn how to manage and do relationship, love, and respect, and honor, and dignity well in the presence of disagreement. The title for today's message is Disagreement Done Well. And so we're asking the question again, how can we disagree well? Now, before I just go on and on with stories and that, let's look into the Bible. Um, we're going to look today in Romans 14, verse 1, all the way to Romans 15, verse 7. Just, just hold on. We're not going to read it all. Don't worry. Uh, I would encourage you guys. I'd actually like to encourage you. It'll take you five minutes of your day, Okay. 
I would encourage you for the next seven days following this message today, read Romans 14, verse 1 to 15, verse 7, once a day. Try it in different translations, etc. What we're going to do today is we're going to read from a bit of it, and then I'm going to reference other bits as we go along. Um, but Romans 14, verse 1 to Romans 15, verse 7. Francis, my man, is it up on the screen? Can I get, can I get a head nod, a thumbs up? Awesome. Thank you, guys. Um, so Romans 14, verse 1. We're going to read to verse 6, and then we're going to jump to verse 10 to 13. Um, in the NIV translation. Here we go. Accept one another, sorry, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not. And the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does. For God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. And they will stand for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever gives, th- sorry, whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. Verse ten. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. We'll pause there. Now, there's so much in here. And if I had it my way, we would read the whole chunk. Well, I could have, right? But I'm choosing not to. Um, And I was going to spend two Sundays on this. But something happened last week, as I already mentioned, uh, as to why now I'm condensing it into one. And so what I want to point out before we even start to unpack some of what we just read is that the, the context of what we just read is, right, there are disagreements in the church about dietary laws from the Old Testament. There's also a reason that some just don't eat meat in general because they could never know out in the marketplace whether that meat had been offered to an idol or not. And there was a lot of concern over whether this meat had been offered to an idol. And Paul's belief, which he shows us in some of the places in further writings here and also in 1 Corinthians 8, um, shows us that Paul doesn't think it's an issue to eat meat that's been offered to an idol. But he doesn't push that on anybody. He says, you know, if you can't eat it because it's been offered to an idol, that's okay. Don't worry about it. Even though he has his belief about it. But what I would like to point out to you, whether it's about the diet or whether it's about some days being considered sacred and other people thinking every day is the same, like we don't, we don't do that anymore. Um, what we're talking about in this is strongly held religious beliefs and cultural identities. These are not just like 
little things about preference. These are not just positions about parenting. These are not just beliefs about is this a good song or a bad song? Is that a good restaurant or not great restaurant? These, these, these are even higher level disagreements, I would suggest to you, than whether vaccines are safe or whether this virus is all that dangerous. Because I know those are debates that go on out there. These are even more intense differences that he's addressing in this writing. Strongly held religious beliefs, cultural identity. And I'll just even say, sometimes we actually try to put religious, what's the word? Religious connotation or religious esteem on our opinions and our beliefs. We try to say, well, in Scripture, you know, and da, 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 and, and, we, and we try to, and I'm not saying we don't live lives, uh, you know, marked and influenced and shaped by Scripture. But there are times where we find ourselves, you know, trying to put that level of authority on our opinion. And it's a way that we, we guard it and the way that we shut down the conversation. And in this uh, portion of Scripture, Paul gives some really practical instruction and theological input into how to handle it. And I was actually talking to Kim, who I mentioned earlier um, this week, and he was saying, yeah, I believe this portion of Scripture that I'm talking about right now is one of the keys for the church in the season. And I would say I agree with that very much. And I want to dive back in for a second into some marriage stuff and John Gottman to mention John Gottman's study um, has come up with what he calls the four horsemen of communication. Anybody ever heard of this stuff? Gottman's four horsemen. Now, in four horsemen, he's getting at the, the image from Scripture. And these four horsemen are basically bringing destruction on the earth. And what he's saying is these four things will destroy relationships when they start to mark your communication. And what are the four things? Francis, can you put them up there? There should be a slide for it. The four things are criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. Now, I would actually suggest to you that those four things are all addressed in Paul's writings here. Now, obviously, Paul didn't have John Gottman's studies available to him back then. There actually, I believe, is some transcendent truth here. And, and even almost in the first verse alone, Paul addresses these things. But what I want to tell you before we look at some of that is that what Gottman says is that the number one predictor of divorce in any relationship when him or any of his team connect with a married couple who's looking for counseling, do you want to know what the number one predictor of divorce is that's on that list? Does anybody know it? Number two, I see a two up in the back. Contempt. Contempt. He says that when you, um, when you can witness contempt in a relationship, if you see that, you detect it, it's the number one predictor of divorce is coming. And, and he says this, um, contempt goes far beyond criticism. It assumes a position of moral superiority over the other person. It looks down upon, right? Despises. And, and Paul actually uses that word contempt repeatedly 
in the NIV translation of this passage. But so criticism, right? Criticism's one of them. Well, Paul repeatedly in this writing says, don't judge people. Don't pass your judgment on them based on your opinion and your preference in this matter. Don't show contempt. He actually, just like I said a minute ago, repeats it overly. Repeat, repeats it over and over. Defensiveness. He says, don't argue your opinion. Don't argue over this stuff. He says, be convinced, key word, in your own mind. It's an interesting. He says, be convinced. I'm not even going to go into why he says that. He, he does speak into it. If you actually take me up on reading through this daily, you'll see how he speaks into some of that. Um, and stonewalling, finally. Right? Stonewalling is where we just we put up our wall. We hold people at a distance. It's the exact opposite of what Paul calls us in, to in this. Because in this, he says, accept them. Receive them. Welcome them. It's the exact opposite of stonewalling. And he bases all of it on how Christ treats us. This comes back to gospel culture, the idea of gospel truth, the truth about Jesus affects how we relate to people around us. The truth about how Jesus has treated us is supposed to affect how we treat those around us. And Paul drives this home. We'll look at, we'll look at that in a bit. But, but I just want to take a few minutes and actually unpack just verse 1 itself. Okay? So let's read it again. Uh, I'll, just, I'll just read it here. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Honestly, everything in the verses that follow um, are, are packed into that one sentence. Accept one whose faith is weak, he says. NIV says, like we just read, without quarreling over disputable matters. New King James says not to dispute doubtful things. And the ESV says not to quarrel over opinions. So, so one calls them disputable matters. One calls them doubtful things. Another calls them just simply opinions. But the key paradigm is in that word weak. He says this, right? Accept one whose faith is weak. Now, we might read that and think, whoa, Paul, that's a little, like, that's a little condescending, don't you think? He even shows his cards later on into which one in the positions in this matter he believes is, is the weak one. But that word weak can also refer to like a little one who's immature. But notice he doesn't say who's wrong. He says the one who's weak, who's immature maybe, like a child. Their faith isn't fully developed or grown up yet. But he doesn't say receive the one who's wrong. It's, it's weak, mature. There's some care. There's tenderness in it. And note, still a believer, one whose faith is weak. Jesus says faith is a mustard seed is all it takes, right? And so, so there's this, this totally different paradigm that that word calls us to. When we're in a situation where maybe there's dramatic difference or disagreement, 
How do we view the person who we don't see eye to eye with? I would suggest to you that when you are dealing with a, a child, right, a little one, a weak one, if you will, you don't treat them with contempt. I hope you don't. No, you think Santa Claus is real? <laughs> you know, like, like, I know maybe some of you don't really tell your kids Santa Claus is real. This is a church. I know a lot of people in church don't do that. But, you know, you don't just, like, you're not going to do that, right? If, you're, if your neighbor's kid is all excited about Santa Claus, you're not going to be like, oh, you idiot. You know, like, you're not going to do that. I hope. You can't ride a bike. <laughs> you can't ride a bike. You don't know how to tie your shoes. Do you do that to a two-year-old? Can I get a show of hands, please? I'd like to know that none of us do this to two-year-olds, okay? That paradigm and that view totally changes how we relate to that person. Disagreement. You know, or maybe it's sometimes in your family. How many of you, actually, you don't have to show your hands. I won't make sure your hands for this. Um, <clears throat> many of you probably can relate to this. Having relatives, siblings, maybe parents, whatever, who you don't agree with. <laughs> oh, we got, a, we got a hand up. We got a bold hand up in here. And... Uh, and, and, and sometimes in those relationships, maybe you don't feel like you're treated very well, et cetera, et cetera. You know, one of the most beautiful things that I have heard people say, especially in relationship maybe to, to parents who they wish their parents would this, that, or the other thing, but they just don't, is just the realization they weren't equipped. They haven't received the same tools that I was given. And, and it's this, this sense where there's grace extended because you recognize that that parent or that sibling or that relative didn't get the privilege of being taught the same relational skills or tools that you've received. Maybe their eyes haven't been opened up to the depths and the beauty of the gospel and the love of Jesus into their life like, like it's touched your life. So you extend grace. Can I get an amen? And, and these type of things that we learn in these relationships can apply to how we function as the church. There is a place for being able to talk these things out. I love the title of a book that my dad referenced last week. It was, if you didn't hear it, the title of the book was How to Talk About the Good and the Bad Without It Getting Ugly. That is beautiful. I like that's That's worth the book right there. And, uh, and, and I think that we so need this, but, but there's this place where we operate in a posture of grace to one another. And because I'm working through this quick today, one message versus two, I'm just going to really quickly highlight some of the other practical uh, instruction and theological input that Paul gives in these passages One of the first ones he hits on is Jesus is Lord, not you. He, he, he says, you know, who are you to condemn or treat with contempt another man's servant? And he establishes repeatedly, Jesus is Lord, 
And every single one of us is going to stand before Jesus' throne on judgment day and give account to our master for our lives. It is not your job to fix every misinformed belief or behavior in every single person around you. Can I get an amen? Thank you. Jesus is Lord, not you. And and kind of connected to that is this thought that I already referenced in verse 5 where he says, let each of you who thinks differently on these matters be convinced in your own mind. I, I found it so interesting years ago when I read that and I saw it, I was like, he doesn't say, hey, just kind of ease up on your conviction. Just kind of like chill out. These things don't matter. No, he says, be convinced. He goes on to say in portions we're not going to read that, that if you're doing things that you're not convinced of that doesn't seem right in your conscience or according to your faith, even though someone else tells you it's okay and they can base it on Scripture and all sort of stuff, for you to do it because you feel that way about it, it's sin. But yet he says, let yourself be convinced in your own mind. And further on, he says, basically between you and the Lord. In many ways, keep it to yourself. And, and, and there's a place to not keep it to yourself. When people come to you and they want wisdom and they're asking for advice and they want to hear what you think about it, there's a place for that. Convinced in your own mind between you and the Lord. Third one, he urges, don't destroy the work of God over food. Again, if you read on, like I'm encouraging you to do this week, you'll see where he starts to talk about this. What he's saying, guys, is that this this thing of like, well, yeah, we can eat whatever we want in the presence of people who are like, no, we, sh- we really shouldn't. To do that around them may cause them to stumble. It may cause them to start stepping into behavior that's not good for them. Maybe you guys are familiar with you feel freedom to drink alcohol, but when you're around a person who you know is a recovering alcoholic, it's better to keep the alcohol in the cupboard. Can I get an amen on that? Thank you, guys. I'll, I'll just keep asking every once in a while. Uh, <clears throat> Because you don't want to destroy the work of God in that individual's life. But I would also suggest to you that, that whether implicit in the text or that we could look elsewhere in Scripture, through our division and our bickering and our arguing and our quarreling over these secondary issues within the church can destroy the work of God in a region. Because it's actually, like we talked about, our love for one another and our unity in the, in the midst of disagreement that displays the beauty of the gospel, the glory of Jesus. So when we learn how to disagree well, how to continue to walk in love and unity, we're supporting, not destroying the work of God in a region. 
Lastly, really, really practical stuff. Well, maybe I'll turn to it, actually. I think it's in verse 19. He says, Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. And he goes on and he says more similar stuff in the verses that follow. But, but the, the thing is this. Invest effort and energy into what leads to peace and mutual edification. Don't invest a bunch of effort and energy into your arguing, into your difference of opinion, into doubtful things. Invest effort and energy into that which leads to peace and mutual edification. Mutual edification basically being what's going to build up you and me. When Chelsea shares a testimony with us about what Jesus has done in recent times, that produces mutual edification. Can I get an amen? When we come together and we sing of the beauty and the goodness of Jesus, despite maybe thinking differently on other things, opinions, perspectives, we are putting energy and effort into that which leads to peace and mutual edification. When we keep the good news of Jesus central in what we speak about, what we preach about, what we converse about over lunch and dinner and coffees and walks, we are putting effort and energy into that which leads to peace and mutual edification. When we get wrapped up in disputable things, opinions, doubtful things, we work against that. Again, I'm not saying there's not a place to talk about those things. There is. But there's also a way. There's a graciousness. There's a, for the sake of audience and different ears, I'll just say it this way. I got taught this. In, in coaching and leadership stuff, et cetera, over the years. And many of you probably are familiar with it. And today we will call it the, the crap sandwich. Anybody familiar with it? Do you know what I'm talking about? When you have critique, constructive criticism, feedback, input for a person, you start up, you wind up with some real good affirmation. You bring the correct correction. He followed up with some more affirmation. That is the crap or poop sandwich. And, and there, there, there's this thing. You, you put more effort and more energy into that which is going to build up than that which is going to tear apart and tear down, right? Now, as we, we come to land here, I'm going to go right to the end of what I said encourage you to read that. This is Romans 15, verse 7. We're going to read from the ESV on this one. And what I would like to say to you before we even read it is that this is really, in the letter to the Romans, probably, I would argue, the most influential letter ever written in human history. This is the last kind of real instruction about how to do community life, how to engage with one another uh, that Paul gives. 
There's a bunch of stuff after where he kind of sums up some of his thoughts and some of his plans, and he says, greet this person and greet that person and all that sort of stuff that's in Paul's letters. There's basically a chapter and a half of all that stuff. But this is kind of the last church life, communal life instruction that Paul gives at the conclusion of what I'd argue is the most influential letter ever written in human history. And here it is, after all that buildup. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Chapter after chapter of theology and, 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 and taking you into the grittiest realities of, of human nature and into the heights of, of heaven, theologically, Paul says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Some other translations say accept one another. Some other translations say receive one another. But the, but the real emphasis of the statement is as Christ has welcomed you. And he's explained to us chapter after chapter after chapter how Christ has welcomed us. And it's deep. There's this old school term that some preachers use when they talk about the love of God. And you want to know what it has been? It's in, it's in old hymns and songs, and it's, and it's in sermons that you'd read from years ago. And it's kind of like tricky for our modern mind to really connect with it because we think it's such a negative term. Here it is. They talk about Jesus' love as condescending love. In other words, Jesus is way up here, and we were way down here, and he went, came down to us to show the depth and the magnitude of his love for us. In many ways, he doesn't look down on you. But rather, he comes down to where we're at, to meet us where we're at. The word became flesh. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. The, the, the majestic, the holy, the, the unlike anyone other, God of the universe came and dwelt among us to show us what real love looks like. Crossed a huge divide. Showed us what love, respect, and dignity shown to people who you may be different than or disagree with can look like and needs to look like and that our world desperately needs. Can you imagine how many times Jesus was walking with his disciples and just held his tongue? 
There, you, you get little glimpses. There are moments where, where it leaks out where he's like, how long must I bear with you guys? That's actually in the scriptures. Maybe he didn't say it like that. But I can only imagine the number of times Jesus could have spoke up and schooled them. But he, he waited for the right time, the right place, the right opportunity. Part of the beauty of the gospel is that the, the judge who has the right, the just right to condemn us, does the exact opposite. Extends mercy, extends grace to you, to me, to all who will come. And we believe, and we say it again and again and again here at Life Tree, that our call is to declare and display Jesus. To speak the reality of the gospel, but also demonstrate it. So therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. We're going to pray. And then when we're actually wrapped up and I turn the microphone off and all that stuff, I would say to you that, that this service, this time of us gathering and worshiping together, um, it doesn't end when the preaching stops. Your connection with one another, your welcoming of one another is just as much a part of the worship gathering as all the songs, as all the preaching. It's, it's where the rubber hits the road in relationship. So that's just a little nudge to say hi to somebody at least. You posture your heart, your body, however you want. I like to put my hands out like this. You don't have to. Father, we thank you for your great love toward us. Jesus, we thank you for the display of that love most clearly seen when you hung on a cross for us. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the illumination that, that, that causes our hearts to actually feel and see and taste and know a little deeper that love. And we welcome you right now here in this place, Lord, by your grace and for your glory that you would pour out a taste of that love upon us, that we would be a people who know how to walk in disagreement with love, with respect, with dignity toward one another, with honor intact. And that you would continue to build for yourself, not just here in Life Tree, in the city of Victoria and beyond, a church that is united in love for one another in the purpose of your mission to bring the life-changing gospel to the lives of many and to transform our city and this world. Just pray a special blessing of grace and love over everyone here and everyone watching. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thank you for listening to the Life Tree Church Sermon of the Week. At Life Tree, we are a family all about declaring and displaying Jesus to transform lives and benefit our city. If you'd like to find out more about Life Tree, you can find us online at lifetree.ca.